Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So often in life, we get stuck in a cycle of reaction. We tackle the most urgent tasks, we deal with emergencies, we put out fires. We intuitively know we'd be better off if we figured out a way to be more proactive rather than reactive, thereby preventing fires from starting in the first place, but we can't seem to switch our approach. My guest today explores why that is, what we can do to start solving the problems of business, life, and society before they become problems. His name is Dan Heath. Today, we talk about his latest book, Upstream, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen. We begin our conversation discussing the issues that keep us from nipping problems in the bud, including problem blindness, lack of ownership, and tunneling. Along the way, Dan shares insights on how to overcome these roadblocks. We then shift gears and explore how to find the best upstream solutions to problems, which requires getting as close as possible to the problem while also being able to survey the system it's embedded in from a bird's eye view. Dan explains the principles at play with plenty of real-life examples of how these tactics were used to effectively tackle big, seemingly intractable social problems. Lots of great insights that you can apply to solving problems in your personal life, business, and community. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash upstream. All right, Dan Heath, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Brett. Glad to be here. So I've been following your work for a long time since uh, Made to Stick, and you got a new book out, Upstream, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen. I'm curious, how does this book, a continuation of the work you've done with your brother, Chip, on your other books? Well, this one was a, a slow burn, to be honest. Uh, the first time I opened a file called Upstream Notes was 2009. So this has been in the back of my brain for over a decade. And there were two things that happened right about the same time that got me interested in this topic. The first was I heard a parable somewhere. I can't even remember where, but the parable goes like this. You and a friend are having a picnic on the side of, of a river. And uh, just as you've kind of laid out your picnic blanket, you're ready to get started. You hear a scream. You look behind you. There's a child in the river, apparently drowning, splashing around. And so you and your friend just instinctively jump in grab the kid, bring him to shore. And just as your adrenaline from the save starts to die down a bit, you hear another scream. You look back, there's a little girl in the river drowning. So back in you go, you fish her out. And no sooner have you brought her to shore that you look back, there are two more kids drowning in the river. And you begin this kind of revolving door of rescue in and out. And just as you're starting to get really fatigued from this work, you notice your friend is wading over to the shore and steps out as if to leave you alone. And you say, hey, where are you going? I can't do this by myself. There's all these kids drowning. And your friend says, I'm going upstream to tackle the guy who's throwing all these kids in the river. And that story really stuck with me. And then it, it feels like maybe a, a month later, I was having a conversation with uh, an assistant police chief in a Canadian city. And he told me a story that that just resonated with that parable. And And what he told me was, was was a kind of thought experiment where he said, imagine you got two police officers and one of them goes downtown in the morning to an intersection that is kind of notoriously chaotic. And, and just by stationing herself there visibly, she gets the drivers to be a bit more cautious, to be more careful, and her presence deters accidents from happening. And then the second officer goes to a different part of downtown where there's a prohibited right turn sign. And she hides around the corner and waits for people to break that rule. And then she nabs them and gives them a ticket. And his question was, which of these officers is doing more for public safety? And he said, indisputably, it's the first that's preventing accidents from happening. 
But he says, guess who gets promoted in the department? Guess who gets rewarded? Guess who gets praised? It's the second officer because she comes back with this stack full of tickets. That's the evidence of her work. And something about those two things together just got me thinking in depth about this issue of why are we so often drawn to reactive elements of life, like the cop who's reacting to people who make this illegal turn, when it theoretically, at least, would be desirable to do a better job preventing problems, going upstream and tackling the guy who's throwing the kids in the river, rather than perpetually saving the kids downstream. So that was the birth of this. Well, yeah, as you said, it, it's fun. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's not fun, but it is kind of fun to react to problems because you feel important, you feel like you're doing something, then as opposed to, you know, thinking about, well, how can we make this thing not happen at all? Yeah. I mean, there's a kind of heroism that comes from downstream response. I mean, in some of the obvious ways, you know, a firefighter putting out flames or a lifeguard jumping in to, to save someone who's drowning, there's genuine heroism there. We even have forms of it in in white collar jobs, you know, the the person who stays up all night to meet the critical deadline and gets a lot of praise around the office and and I suspect we all know some people who almost seem to live for those moments. In fact, I've gotten some some emails from some people who said they suspect that their colleagues almost want the flames to break out so they can be the firefighter. And, and I think while certainly we should be glad there are people around to save the day, I mean, my point of view is the need for heroics is usually pretty good evidence that there's a systems problem. Right. It's it's great that the lifeguard saves the kids in the YMCA pool. But if things had been properly configured, if you didn't have kids in the pool who are weak swimmers, if the lifeguard chair had been put exactly where it's supposed to be, so there are no blind spots for the lifeguard, if the lifeguard had been taught better scanning techniques, maybe there never would have been a drowning incident in the first place. And so that that riff on heroism, like is a hero the person who saves the day or is a hero the person who keeps the day from needing to be saved, that really got in my head. So let's talk about, so I mean, I think we all agree, we'd rather like prevent the problems than you know, have to deal with them when they do happen. But as you start off in the book, you talk about how it's really hard to first solve downstream problems because we can't even, oftentimes can't even see that the problem exists and you call this problem blindness. And in, in your research, you said there's a lot of things going on psychologically, sociologically that causes this problem blindness. What's going on there? Yeah, problem blindness says oftentimes we can't see the problems around us, or or even if we can see them, we code them as if they're just inevitable. Like, let me give you an example. There was a guy named uh, Marcus Elliott, who was a, a medical doctor that was interested in sports. And back in uh, 1999, he was hired by the Patriots, the football team, to join their staff. They'd been plagued by hamstring injuries, especially from some of their skilled players, a lot of wide receivers out. They'd had 22 major hamstring injuries the season before, and, and it was just really wreaking havoc with their performance. So Marcus Elliott comes in. And, and the mental model at that time in pro sports, especially football, was, you know, look, this is a dangerous game. It's a violent game. People are going to get hurt. That's just the way it is, of course. But Marcus Elliott had a very different philosophy. His point of view was most of the injuries that happen in pro football are actually the result of subpar training, inadequate training. And so he started this, this brand new regime at the Patriots where before it was like a one size fits all program. 
It's like people that were in radically different positions, you know, nose tackle and wide receiver were, were getting, generically speaking, the same kind of training. They're trying to get stronger. They're lifting weights. And so Marcus Elliott starts doing this, this individualized training where first he assesses them on a variety of things. And, and he's looking in particular for muscle imbalances because what often creates an injury is, is when, for instance, your right hamstring is significantly stronger than your left. And that can show up in ways that, that end in injury. And so he starts doing these kind of one-off training programs to make sure there was balance among muscle groups that they were preparing for the kinds of, of skilled maneuvers they'd be doing during the game. And the proof was in the pudding. The season after he had begun his regimen, there were three hamstring injuries versus 22. And so all of a sudden, Marcus Elliott is making believers out of people. It's like the attitude before, well, injuries are just part of the game. They always will be here. It's a violent game. Of course, that happens. That's problem blindness. That means... We may be aware, certainly we're aware when athletes get hurt, but we just assume, ah, there's nothing we can do about that. And it takes, in these situations, someone like Marcus Elliott to come along and say, hey, wait a minute, what we're coding as inevitable, what we're coding as natural, is neither. Like, we can do something about this. We can fix that problem. And that's how we overcome problem blindness. But how was he able to see that there was a problem? Like, what was it about Marcus that made him different? I think with people like Marcus, what happens is they have an understanding of the problem that's deeper than most people. I mean, keep in mind, he's a medical doctor. It's not often you find medical doctors that end up as trainers on, on pro teams. And so, you know, when I'm talking to him on the phone, he, he no longer works with the Patriots. He has his own sports training outfit and he does this, this just incredibly obsessive analysis of pro athletes. Uh, I would almost describe it like an MRI for the way pro athletes move. I mean, he, they'll train multiple cameras and all these diagnostics on, on NBA athletes and watch how they pivot and jump and land. And, and some of the stuff he was telling me, I, I literally could not even understand. I just don't have enough knowledge of physiology, but he can get down to the granular detail of, you know, look at the way you landed after that rebound and look at the tension that, that's running across your knee. And based on our diagnostics, people who have the kind of tension that you're experiencing right now almost always have a knee injury within the next season or two. And so when you're that close to a problem, you start spotting leverage points. You start spotting opportunities for change. And I think that's what allows them to see that there's hope. Another issue you say that keeps people from actually working on these upstream, solving these problems upstream is that there's a lack of ownership, that there's no one held accountable for solving those problems. Why, why is that? A lot of times it has to do with, with silos that develop in organizations. I'm sure everybody that works in business knows exactly what I'm talking about. Like here's an example from Expedia, the online travel site. So back in, in 2012, this guy named Ryan O'Neill, who worked in the customer experience unit, he was looking at some data and, and he discovered something that kind of blew his mind. And that was that at that time, for every hundred people who booked, you know, a a flight or a hotel or a car on Expedia, 58 of them end up calling the call center for support. 58 out of 100. Now, the, the whole point of an online travel site is presumably self-service. And yet, the va- not the vast majority, but the majority of customers using the site ended up needing intervention. So he's like, what, what in the world is going on here? So he starts digging into the data, figuring out why are customers calling us. The number one reason customers were calling was to get a copy of their itinerary. 
20 million calls were logged in 2012 alone for people trying to get a copy of their itinerary. And so this is kind of one of those forehead slapping moments where you're like, how could this have happened? Why was there not an alarm going off when we logged like our 8 millionth call for a copy of the itinerary? And so the CEO at that time worked with Ryan O'Neill to create a war room where they started analyzing this question and figuring out, hey, we need to change things. We need to start asking a different question. How do we keep people from needing to call us? And the fixes were the easiest thing in the world, right? I mean, you give customers tools to get their own itinerary. You change the way you send out the email so they don't end up in spam filters and on and on and on. The solution was not the hard part. What made this hard was that Expedia was organized in a way where it was in everyone's interest to ignore or neglect this problem. So you think about the silos, there's a marketing team whose job it is to try to attract people to come to Expedia instead of one of the other travel sites. They get measured on, you know, numbers of people coming. And then you've got a a product team whose job it is to make the site so easy to use that you're just constantly pushing people toward a transaction. And so they're measured on, can we get transactions closed? And then you've got a web team that's measured on uptime and, and speed. And then you've got the customer call center and they're measured on what? How quickly can I get somebody off the phone and how satisfied are they with the resolution? So all those goals make kind of superficial sense when you hear them, but then you realize something. It's literally no one's job to stop a customer from needing to call. Nobody. I mean, it's even worse than that. No one would even get a gold star if that happened. It's not on anybody's scoreboard. And so this is the kind of thing that happens in organizations where because we're constantly pushing for efficiencies and specialization, because we want to wring more productivity out of the process, we start missing what might be major, major problems because they just transcend the gaps between silos. And once Expedia caught on to that, and once they decided to push their way upstream, it turned out the solutions were actually very, very simple. And those 20 million calls just vanished. So another barrier is what you call tunneling. What do you mean by by that? There's a great research study by this um, this woman named Anita Tucker, who for her dissertation at Harvard, she followed nurses around for hundreds of hours, just shadowed them to see what their life was like. And what she found was they're solving problems constantly. They, you know, they... They go to get a towel for a patient. There's no more towel. So they have to figure out where to get a towel. They ask for some medication from the pharmacy and they get the wrong medicine or the wrong dose or the pharmacy's out or some equipment breaks. Anita Tucker talks about this one day that a, a woman was trying to discharge a mother who just had birth. And in the discharge process, they realized the baby doesn't have the security anklet that goes, you know, around its ankle to they're intended to keep ch- children from being abducted. And, and so when it's missing, it's a big deal. They hunt around for it. It turns up in the baby's bassinet. So great. They can get the mother checked out. Then three hours later, the same exact thing happens with a different baby, you know, again, missing an anklet. This time they do a frantic search, can't find it. So they had to create another way to check the mother out and honor security. And, and so that was that. And so this portrait that Anita Tucker is painting is nurses are responsive. They are improvisational. They're resourceful. They don't go running to the boss every time something goes wrong. They can kind of own things and work around problems. And when you think about it like that, it's pretty, pretty inspirational. It's a great portrait. But then from another perspective, you look at the situation and you go, this is the description of a system that will never improve a system that never learns, right? Because if you are constantly working around problems, 
and you're never solving those problems at the systems level. You know, why are we running out of towels? Why are these anklets slipping off baby's ankles? You're dooming yourself to solving those problems forever. Now, to be clear, this is not a nurse thing. I'm not picking on nurses. I think Anita Tucker could have shadowed probably any profession and found exactly the same thing. And the phenomenon she discovered, I think, is well described by some psychologists who wrote a book called Scarcity, and they call this tunneling. And they say that tunneling happens when we have a scarcity of, of time or resources to combat the problems we're facing. And when we have that scarcity, it's almost like we we give up thinking that we can solve all the problems on our plate. And we may even give up trying to prioritize them. And it just becomes this experience where we feel like we're in a tunnel, you know, just conjure up that, that mental image. And in a tunnel, all you're thinking about is, God, how do I get forward? If there's something blocking my way, I want to get it behind me as quick as possible. I just have to keep moving. You know, those nurses, okay, I'm out of towels. I don't have time to do like root cause analysis on why there's no towels. I just, I got 10 patients clamoring for my attention. What am I going to do? I got to go steal a towel from the, the unit down the floor, right? And, and that makes sense. And that's familiar behavior. And I suspect all of us can empathize with tunneling, but we just have to realize that it's a trap. That if we're stuck in the tunnel, we stop asking the really important questions like, are we even going the right way? You know, are we headed to the destination? Might there be an entirely different tunnel that would get us there faster or better? So this is one of the key traps that I think keeps us downstream tunneling. Well, I think you talk about this in the book. You know, one problem that we we spend a lot of time, money, and resources trying to solve downstream is poverty. And poverty is often caused by tunneling. People who are in poverty they have scarcity of time, resources, bandwidth. And so they're just trying to put out all the fires. They don't take the time. They, they don't have the ability to take the time out. And they go, okay, what can I do to not have these problems in the first place? Exactly right. Like if you look at something like payday loans, which of course we all know are just notoriously expensive and the APRs can be hundreds of percentage points a year and it can be a real trap. But, but from the perspective of tunneling, it makes sense. Like if you've got more problems than you can handle, if you've got a sick kid and you're working two jobs and you're already on thin ice and you can't afford to miss any more days and, and childcare isn't easy for you and, and nutrition isn't easy. And then your car breaks down and it's like ugh, to keep your life in order. I mean, doesn't it make sense that you would just walk down the street to the payday loan place and get enough money to fix your car so you can get to work that day and not get fired? It's like we come from, from outside with this attitude of, of kind of pristine financial advice thinking and, oh, well, you know, that, 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 that's not wise to make a decision where you have an APR that's so high. But, but if you're in the tunnel, it looks like a solution. And I think that's why, you know, to make some of these upstream solutions possible, we first have to find ways to escape the tunnel. Yeah, you got to provide some slack in your life. Exactly. And I think, um, I mean, it's easy to say in the case of poverty, I, I, I don't think I have the answers. I wish, I wish someone did to figure out how do we get more slack in the system. In organizations, I think it's, it's slightly more practical, though still difficult. Like in that nurse situation, you know, it, the way I portrayed it, it seemed like, well, they're going to be stuck in the tunnel forever. But I think there are surprisingly easy ways to at least provide an escape, a temporary escape. Like there's a bunch of health systems that have adopted what are called safety huddles where, you know, every day, usually in the morning, they have an all hands meeting. It might be very quick, 15, 20 minutes where they talk about 
safety near misses from the day before, you know, things that went wrong or almost went wrong, you know, maybe a, the wrong medication almost delivered to a patient caught at the last second. And they talk about, Hey, how do we keep those kinds of things from happening in the future? And that's systems thinking. And they look at the day ahead of them and they say, is there anything really different or complex that's going to be happening today that we should watch out for? And, and what I love about that is that's a kind of structured way to get out of the tunnel, right? That would have been the perfect opportunity for that nurse dealing with the, the missing security anklets on babies to say, hey, this weird thing happened yesterday twice with the anklets. They're falling off and we're, I, I swear we're putting them on tight. Like we, we need to figure out what's going on here. We need to deputize someone to take this over. And so, so even a temporary escape from the tunnel, I think, can be really powerful. One thing I've done personally in my, in my life, my wife and I have done is like whenever, I'm sure we all have had those experiences where we're just getting overwhelmed. Everything's kind of piling up because you got sick, kids got sick, stuff happened at work. And you're just like, I can't get this done. So we have this thing called a reset day where Mm -hmm. we just take a day off during the work week. So the kids are at school. We plow through all those things that have been building up. And then we also take time to figure out, okay, how can we prevent this from happening again? And we do it. I don't, it's just, you do it when you feel like you need it, but I've found that to be like a, like a way to provide slack and it pays off that taking that day off pays off dividends down the road. I love that idea. And it's the, and it's the perfect illustration of how slack can be the antidote to tunneling. I I've been fascinated by in, in researching this book, you know, probably we're going to talk a lot about big social issues, but I've also been fascinated by how upstream thinking can, can make a difference in our personal lives. Like I talked to this guy who, you know, all couples have these recurring things that they bicker about, uh, you know, you left the toilet seat up again and that sort of thing. So his thing with his wife was the hallway light. And he was always going in and out, usually to take the dog out. And so he'd flip on the hallway light and he'd come back in and he'd forget to turn it off. And that just irritated his wife. So it became like this little thing that they bickered about. And one day, all of a sudden he realizes this thing we've been fighting about that's like a recurring irritant in our relationship. I can solve this. Like I can make this go away forever. And so he files for divorce. No, I'm, I'm, I'm totally kidding. He didn't file for divorce. No, it, it was a much simpler fix. He went to Home Depot and he bought what's called a light timer, which is just like a different plate that goes over your light switch. And you can press a button that says five minutes. The light will turn on for five minutes and then it'll auto turn itself off. And, and I just love stories like that because how many places in our life have we just learned to adapt to something. We've adapted to a problem. We've just come to accept that, well, we're forever going to be bickering about that one thing. When, I mean, for God's sake, it took one trip to Home Depot and a $10 light plate. And now this irritant has disappeared from this couple's existence forever. I mean, that's, that's upstream. That, that actually inspired me. So one of the irritants we have in our family is that with, with, with iPads. So we have like, you know, iPad tablets for each of our kids. And the problem is charging them. Like they're, they're always running at it's like 1%. Right. And like you only have one cable and we'd always like plug it in the computer and they'd always like bicker about who gets it. And I was like, I'm tired. It's like almost every other night. And so I just, I decided to buy a, a, a hub for USB chargers and it's, I put it in there. They're going to be able to plug in their iPads at night, both of them. And I'm not gonna have that issue anymore. And I'm looking forward I to it. I love that. Yeah. I love it. And then and then you're kicking yourself like, why didn't I do this like three years ago? Like I, my favorite example, I love this one because it's just so wonderfully trivial. So this woman was talking about she got transferred to a different department at work and she had to move desks. And her desk was right by one of those 
heavy doors that goes into a stairwell. And, and every time that door was open from somebody coming up the stairs, it, it had this just horrible squeak and it just, you know, drove her crazy. And so she puts up with this for like two days. And then on the third day, she brings in like a can of WD-40 and just lubes up the hinges. The squeak disappears and people on the floor treat her like she is a miracle worker. They are like astonished that she solved this problem that they've probably been living with for months or for years. And, and that's what I mean about our capacity to adapt to situations can almost be a curse, right? Because we, we come to just accept that certain problems are part of our world that, that really don't need to be. Well, there, these th- three things happen there. So she saw a problem. She took ownership of the problem when she didn't have to. Like she had to volunteer for it. Like it wasn't assigned to her. And then she, what, she got out of the tunnel. She did something about it. Exactly right. And, and, and your ownership point is, is the one that I really want to call out because this is a very, very strange thing about upstream versus downstream problem solving. So with, with downstream problems, you know, you can almost always pinpoint when something goes wrong, whose job is it to fix? You know, a house catches on fire. You know, of course, it's going to be the fire department's going to fix that, you know, or, or at the YMCA pool, someone's thrashing. It's going to be the lifeguard's job to fix that. But when you flip it around and you say, whose job is it to prevent fires from happening? All of a sudden, the ownership gets very diffuse, right? Well, the homeowners have some responsibility and the builders have some and the people who write building codes have some and the fire department in the sense of education has some. And, and all of a sudden, when a problem doesn't have an owner, the chances are it's not going to get fixed. And so this leads to a very odd conclusion, which is even though downstream activity is, is obligated and almost mandatory, like, of course, if there's a problem, we're going to fix it. Upstream activity, even though the stakes can be enormous, is often voluntary. I mean, it's it's often chosen rather than demanded. So upstream activity starts when somebody somewhere says, I didn't create this problem, but damned if I'm not going to be the one who fixes it. And sometimes that's in trivial things like being the person who brings in the WD-40 to work. Sometimes it can be huge things like telling some stories in the book about homelessness and substance abuse and others where it was a group of people who voluntarily put on their shoulders the burden of solving that problem. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Thanks in large part to their patented ballpark pouch, Saks Underwear will change your expectations of what a great pair of underwear should feel like. What's the ballpark pouch? Well, it's these internal mesh panels. It keeps everything in place down there. There's no more sticking, no more chafing. Super comfortable. It's underwear designed with our anatomy in mind. The fabric they use on Saks Underwear is super soft, moisture wicking, so it keeps everything nice and breezy down there, even repels BO. My go-to pair of Saks Underwear is the Kinetic Boxer Brief. It's got the ballpark pouch, super soft, moisture wicking fabric, and I like it because it's got like a compression short feel to it, which I like when I'm doing barbell squats. I like having that compression around my legs. Now, if you like to try Saks Underwear out, I know you will, because there's the thing, I've gotten letters from AOM podcast listeners saying like Saks Underwear has been a game changer for them. I got a deal for you. You can get save 10% off and get free shipping when you go to my special URL. That's saxunderwear.com slash AOM. That's Saks Underwear, S-A-X-X, Saks with two X's, saxunderwear.com slash AOM. You'll save 10%. You'll get free shipping. Go check it out today. Check out the Kinetic Boxer Brief, saxunderwear.com slash AOM. And now back to the show. Well, this leads nicely to my next question. So we talked about the barriers of, of solving upstream uh, problem, problems upstream. 
once you do that, you've looked at, you have like seven questions that people should ask themselves as they're trying to fine tune what the problem is and working on, working on a solution for that problem. And the first question you found that's useful is how do you unite the right people? Because as you just said, upstream problems, the responsibility is diffuse. It might be a whole bunch of different people who are responsible that can solve that problem. So how do you, how do you find those people who can actually help solve the problem before it happens? This was one theme that that I noticed again and again in very different looking kinds of problems is that people learn to do what I call surrounding the problem. So I'll give you an example from, there's a city called Rockford in Illinois. It's actually the second biggest city behind Chicago. And they had a a problem as do many cities. This is a kind of a former factory town um, that had gone into hard times after the Great Recession. And so they had a homelessness problem there. And the mayor was a gentleman named Larry Morrissey. He was in his third term. He'd been working on homelessness for nine years. And by his own account, he said they'd made no progress and maybe even the problem had gotten worse. So he'd become a bit jaded about the issue of homelessness. And around that time, one of his colleagues challenges him to take what was called the mayor's challenge, which was a uh, an initiative sponsored by the federal government to encourage communities to try to end veteran homelessness in their cities. And and so Morrissey is kind of skeptical. He's like, what's going to change? We've been doing this for nine years. We've gotten nowhere. He agrees reluctantly to take this challenge. And about 10 months later, Rockford becomes the first city in the United States to eliminate the problem of veteran homelessness. And so you just look at kind of the the bookends of that story and you go, what in the world happened in 10 months that didn't happen in nine years? And it has to do with basically two things. They, they changed a bunch of their, their strategic and systems work, which we can unpack later. But, but to me, I think the fundamental thing that they did was they changed the way they collaborated. So the first thing they did was, you know, back to that example of whose job is it to keep fires from happening. The question here is, whose job is it to keep homeless people from being on the streets? And you could make a case for about a dozen different parties. Uh, the VA uh, ha- ha- has part of the ownership and the police department, uh, the, the healthcare system, uh, the homeless shelters, social services. And so it's one of these situations, you know, back to the Expedia example, where things are heavily siloed, there's lots of gaps between organizations. So in Rockford, they start getting together you know, meeting as a group with all those constituents I just described and others, they meet around the same table. And so that's part one of the story is you got the right group of people together, people with all the different facets of the problem. And then the second thing is you changed how those parties collaborated. So one thing that had plagued homelessness up to that point is that they lacked useful data. Like the federal government requires cities to do what's called a, a, a point in time census where you, you kind of go out one night every year and you do your best to count all the homeless people. And then you wait until the next year and you do another one. And they realize that's just totally inadequate for trying to manage a problem in real time. And so what they created on their own, you know, back to that notion of upstream work being voluntary, they created a by name list of every person in the community who's homeless. I mean, literally, I saw it. It's a Google Doc. And you go down and you're like, well, there's Steve and there's Michael and there's David. And and for every person, there's a description of what their situation is and how's their health and roughly how old they are and who's talking to them. And so these meetings among the, the different organizations who are surrounding homelessness, their meetings would be conducted name by name. You know, instead of talking 
theoretically about, hey, what can we do about this horrible systemic problem of homelessness? No, no, it was Steve. Okay, who's seen Steve in the last week? Where is he? Well, he's still got his tent set up under the bridge, but he's been coming into the homeless shelter a bunch to eat lunch. Uh, we want to let Steve know that we have housing for him when he's ready to move in. You know, we're ready to get him off the street. So who's going to talk to Steve this week? And it became practical. It became human. It became tangible. And it was also easy to score victories because you start seeing, hey, last week, Steve was on the street. This week, Steve is in supported housing. And Larry Morrissey, the mayor, said that that kind of approach was transformative, that these meetings they would have used to be bitch sessions, he said. And now it was like they had a a goal. They had a tangible mission And so that's how you can spin your wheels for nine years on homelessness and accomplish nothing. And then in 10 months, you can become the first city on record to end veteran homelessness. And I think that's such a powerful illustration of how we may have more power than we're even aware of. That just by changing the way we collaborate and who collaborates and how we measure our progress, we can make a big difference in problems that we might have thought intractable. So the next question you ask, or think is useful to ask when you're trying to solve these ups, these problems upstream is how to change the system. And that's, that's a big question because systems like that can be hard to change. They're embedded in bureaucracy. They're calcified with tradition. Um, so it can seem like it's impossible to change the system. So I, mean, I think, you, I think that, I mean, can that question lead people to be like, well, there's nothing we can do right? This is a problem. This is how it always is. So what does that look like in action when people ask how to change the system? Yeah. Changing the system can, can be a very big deal for, for the reasons that you said, you know, systems can be big, they can be bureaucratic, they can be slow to change. But I think the saving grace is that small changes in big systems yield big changes. So that's why they're worth fighting for. Like one of my favorite stories in the book is about this guy named Darshak Sangavi, who is working in the healthcare system in the federal government. And his job is to look for prevention programs that deserve the support of Medicare and Medicaid that, you know, could receive funding from those two. And so he's scanning and he comes across this program called the Diabetes Pre- Prevention Program, the DPP, which is a, a well-known program in healthcare. It's been proven again and again to, um, to stop some people that are at risk of developing diabetes from developing it. So that's a big deal because, you know, diabetes is a chronic disease. It's very expensive to treat. It's, uh, it causes a lot of harm for the individual. And so to get Medicare and Medicaid funding for DPP, Sangavi has to establish two things. Number one, that, that this program makes a difference in people's health. And so check, there's a ton of evidence for that. Second thing he has to prove is that the program will save the government money. Well, it seems like there's a, slam dunk case there too, because if you can stop someone from developing a chronic disease, chronic diseases cost a ton to treat, surely you stand to save a bundle. So Sangavi, you know, puts his evidence together. He thinks this is going to be my first real widespread victory in this role. He takes it to the government actuaries who are the people who can certify it as a cost-saving program. It's the last step before expansion. And the actuaries say, no, we can't certify this as cost-saving. And the reason is that this DPP program is extending people's lives. And when you extend people's lives, their healthcare costs more. So just, just sit with that logic for a second and think about that. That is not a sick joke I'm making. That was the actual 
official logic of the federal government, which is, of course, the biggest payer in our healthcare system. And so Sangavi is just sitting there, just stunned, like, really? The, the success of this program is going to be the force that brings it down? And so he and his boss, a guy named Patrick Conway, write an appeal to the chief actuary. And then this is my favorite part of the story. This is in late 2015, and just three days before Christmas, something remarkable happens. One of the, the actuaries that reports to the chief actuary, it's a guy that's on the cusp of retirement, sends this memo. And in the memo, he makes this impassioned case that this ruling is just wrong. It's morally wrong. And in the memo, he envisions what would happen if the media got wind of this and the kind of headlines that they would write. You know, Medicare saves seniors die and the, and the press storm that would come out of this. But, but fundamentally, the case he's making is that we should not penalize programs that help people live longer, that that is, is an abuse of what actuaries stand for. And he says, you know, actuaries have a special responsibility because while doctors at their worst might only harm a few people, actuaries at their worst could harm millions. And he says, calculators should play a role in determining how much we should reimburse hospitals and doctors, but calculators should not play a role in determining how long people should be allowed to live. You can almost hear like the trumpets playing in the background, you know, with this, with this memo. And justice prevails in this situation. The chief actuary reverses the decision. DPP gets funded. There is now a change in a federal register somewhere that says a prevention program's ability to extend lives cannot be held against it in computing its costs. And so back to this idea of systems change. That's what systems change looks like. I mean, it's, it's boring on the merits. I mean, if, if I showed you the wording of that legal clause in an actuarial guidebook somewhere, I mean, you would yawn. It's, it's, it's not satisfying like a rescue is or a gunfight or a, a, a life-saving expedition. But boy, does it matter. I mean, that one little tweak to the federal rule book is going to save or extend thousands of lives. There are people that will never develop diabetes who otherwise would have in a world where that one little cluster of sentences hadn't been changed. And so that's why systems change is worth fighting for, even though it can be quite difficult, because it can make all the difference upstream. Right. It was a small change. It was difficult to get through. And I think the next question you think is useful to ask is like, look, what's the leverage point? And in this situation, it was a small change. And like, this was like the leverage point. This was the point where change could happen. And so the question, what's the leverage point can help you find out what's one thing you can change in the system that will have all these cascading effects downstream. Yeah. That's the thing is, is when, when you're dealing with some big problem, it can be paralyzing. Like, where do you start? If you, if you got interested in hunger in your community, my God, where would you, what would you do in the first week? And I think the best advice that I've gotten from the people that I've, I've studied is get closer to the problem, to immerse yourself in it. If there's any people listening who are, who are kind of operations gurus at Lean or Six Sigma, you know, you know, this phrase, go to the Gimba, you know, get close to where the work is happening so you can observe the problem. And I'll give you an example from, from a really big issue in Chicago. You know, there have been recurring crime waves in Chicago. And, and during one of those, 
some academics that formed what's called the University of Chicago Crime Lab, which is this, it's almost like a bridge between academia and, and police and, and government practice. They were trying to find, you know, evidence-based ways to reduce crime. And at this time, there had been just an absolute wave of, of youth homicide. So lots and lots of young men were, were being killed. And the lore at that time was it's gang activity. You know, it, it's gangs, they're fighting, you know, uh, struggling over turf, people are getting killed. Well, these academics said, you know, we don't know much about gang activity, but we do know how to study problems. And so what they did was they went to the medical examiner's office and they asked to examine the records and reports for the last 200 young men who had been killed. And they went through those reports and what they found was a very different picture. Yes, there were some deaths related to gang violence, but what they found was that more commonly was a situation like this, and this is essentially a, uh, a streamlined version of a real case, that a couple of groups of young men got into an argument on the street, and one of the groups was arguing that, that a guy from the other group had stolen one of their bikes, and it started as an argument, and it escalated, and, and one of the guys started to walk away, and, and the other group took offense to that, found it disrespectful, and shot the guy in the back. And so what you found when you got close to the problem was what's happening is that the, the kind of dumb arguments that teenage boys all over the world get into were escalating to gun violence. And so Harold Pollack was one of the academics involved and he was studying these reports. He said, you know, at, at University of Chicago, we have to have equations. And so our equation after reading all these reports was young guys plus impulsivity plus alcohol plus guns equals a dead body. And so you think about that, just think about that. Let, let, let's zoom out of this situation and think about what they're doing. They go, you know, without bias to, to just study and look close at what happened in these situations that went awry. And then they come out with this, this kind of equation, which admittedly is simplified. But what it says is, those are all independent leverage points, right? You could try to intervene to reduce access to alcohol. You could try to intervene to reduce access to guns. You could try to combat impulsivity somehow. Those are all independent ways to try to get some progress on this problem. And in this case, they chose the leverage point of impulsivity. And we can talk more about the, the solution they ended up funding, if you like. But, but I think the important thing for our perspective is their instinct to get closer to the problem was what unlocked the potential leverage points that could be used to find a solution. Well, yeah, we can talk about it because I thought it was really interesting. This is they decided to do the impulsivity thing. And basically, they, one guy developed this after school program for boys where they learned how to control their emotions. It's a fascinating program. It's called uh, Becoming a Man, BAM, that's what they call it for short. And it was invented by this guy named Tony D, who had kind of a, a rough upbringing, but uh, found himself as a young adult, discovered that he loved psychology and that he wanted to, to help men, young men grow up with male mentors and to teach them how to be a man and how to live with integrity. And so he, he figures out this program, which is just utterly unique. It's, it's like imagine 10 or 12. Uh, 16-year-old boys in, in high school who are brought together and they put their chairs in a circle and, and they start these sessions with, uh, with a check-in, which is just sort of like, what's on your mind? How are you feeling today? How are you feeling psychologically, physically, spiritually? And 
And, and at first, as you can well imagine, I mean, these kids are, it's like crickets. Nobody's going to, no 16 year old boy is just going to make themselves vulnerable in a situation like that. And so for the first session or two, Tony D has to basically claw it out of them. Uh, will you at least tell me whether you're mad, sad, or glad today? But eventually they come to trust each other and they come to open up. And what Tony D does with them is like a combination of, of a support group and tough love and male mentorship. But, but there's also an important part of the program that's about self-control. And it's about Tony D contrasts warrior energy with, with savage energy. And it's fundamentally about anger is a natural state. I mean, especially for, for a teenage male, anger is going to happen, but it, it's a question of how do you use anger? Do you let it be a destructive force or a constructive one? Can you be the person when that argument breaks out in the street about the stolen bicycle? Can you be the one that takes three seconds to just reflect, you know, how badly could this go? And is that what I want? Do I want to live with the consequences of escalating this? And, and so Tony D had created this program called BAM, this kind of fascinating program. And when the crime lab people found out about it, they said, aha, like what if what Tony D is doing is operating on this leverage point of impulsivity. In other words, what if, what if his program is teaching people to rethink the, the instinct to escalate, to get violent? And so they, they end up funding the BAM program. They do a randomized control trial to test whether it really works. And the results come back and they kind of astonish everyone. Like it takes almost a year for them to finish crunching the data and They've had to get the police department involved because they're trying to cross-reference arrest rates and so forth. And they have this unveiling. And, and Harold Pollack, the guy I mentioned earlier who had examined the medical examiner reports, he, he tells the people involved, among the students who participated in this BAM program, arrests were down 28% versus the control group. And violent crime arrests were almost cut in half. And everybody's jaws dropped. And Pollack said it was one of the greatest moments of his entire career. And, and that's the kind of thing that, that can happen with a, pr- with a, a problem that is as seemingly complex and unsolvable as, as a crime wave in Chicago. They took it apart. They got close to it. They found a potential leverage point. They found a program that would act on that leverage point. And in this case, it worked. And in this case, they were able to measure success. But one tricky thing about solving problems upstream is that sometimes it can be hard to measure. Right? Sometimes, like, how do you measure a problem that didn't occur, right? I mean, you can say, well, it could have been worse. It's like, well, could it have been worse? I don't know. Because you have nothing to judge it against. Exactly right. And, and if you go back to at, at the very beginning, I was talking about the two police officers and one of them, you know, stayed in the busy intersection and kept accidents from happening. You ask yourself, how do you prove, as you said, when something doesn't happen, you know, the, that morning, the police officer's presence stopped a guy who was commuting to his job downtown. He would have been killed in an accident that morning had it not been for her presence, but he'll never know. And she'll never know. And so the only thing that you can rely on in a situation like that is data. You know, you keep logs of the accidents that happened before and after you positioned a police officer there. And, and if you do your proper statistical analysis, and the number of accidents go down, maybe you can attribute that to your work. I mean, that's, that's what upstream success looks like. It's, it's like numbers moving on a page. 
it's not as tangible and it's not as satisfying as fishing a kid out of the river. But then having said that, that the data is the scoreboard for this kind of work, it also opens up a whole can of worms. Like I think about it this way. Imagine that in whatever town or city you live in, the, the chief starts touting that crime has gone down 20%, you know, over the past few years. And, and that on the surface is a huge victory. Everybody should be happy about that. And that's an example of, of measuring upstream progress with data. Crime did not happen. Okay. So hooray. But then you start having to poke at that data in different ways. For instance, what if you found out that the crime had gone down by 20% everywhere in the U.S.? Now, how would you feel about the police chief's genius and approaches? What if you found out that the crime was down 30% nationally and 20% locally? Now, how would you feel about the intervention, success or failure? What if you found out that, that the chief had been so vigorous and aggressive about enforcing you know, a reduction in crime that you discovered that officers at the street level were kind of burying crimes, like looking the other way in certain situations or, or doing what's called downgrading where very serious crimes like rape are often, you know, scaled down to something like sexual assault because nobody wants to have a rape number show up on their record. And so all of a sudden, what looked like just plain and simple statistical proof that you'd done a good thing we have a lot of questions. Like, could you have actually made things worse, even as the numbers suggested you were making things better? And so that's a theme in the book is, number one, we're almost lost if we don't have some kind of data to use to orient us and to guide us. So data is essential, but data is also just a minefield of potential problems that we have to be aware of and we have to constantly be trying to root out. Well, the last question I want to talk about is, you know, when you start messing with systems, systems are complex. So you can make one change one place and like you can see the change you want and maybe it has the desired effect, but then it causes a problem somewhere else. So how do you ensure the changes you make isn't going to actually cause more problems for you? This is another one of those cautionary themes in the book is is because we're intervening in systems, we've got to be very, very clear on what the ripple effects of our intervention are. Like Here's an example from New York City. So about 10 years ago, there was a, a young Google engineer, a young man. He was just walking through Central Park. And this freak accident happens. He was struck by a falling branch from an oak tree. And it caused uh, brain injuries and paralysis. It was just a horrible thing, total fluke injury. Except that a bit later, the, the controller of New York City, a guy named Scott Stringer, he starts analyzing the claims that the city is paying out. Like this, this engineer's lawsuit eventually got settled for $11.5 million. And, and what Scott Stringer realizes is there's actually a whole rash of settlements coming from falling branches. And he's like, the hell's going on here? And he keeps investigating and finds out that a couple of years earlier, the city's pruning budget had been cut in an effort to save money. And so one of, one of his assistants, David Saltonstall said, you know, whatever money we thought we were saving on the pruning side, we were paying out and then some on the lawsuit side. And so they start studying the city's claims and they start finding these examples of, you know, there's, there's one playground in Brooklyn 
that was responsible for multiple lawsuits. Like five different kids had broken their leg on this playground, sued the city because a swing had been hung a little bit too low. And, and that's an example of what we're talking about, where depending on how you frame the situation, Yes, the uh, the parks department saved some money by cutting the pruning budget. That looked good for them, for that piece of the system. But if you zoom out and look at the system as a whole, that was a bad decision. It cost the system as a whole money because it, it number one, cost more payouts in terms of lawsuits, uh, leaving aside the obvious human misery that came from the, the falling branches. And And I think a good caution is, there's this systems thinker named Danella Meadows, who I, I quote a lot in the book. And she said, you know, when you're thinking about a system, you've got to figure out a way that lets you see the system as a whole, not just the part that might have drawn your attention to begin with. And I think that's a great caution is, is a lot of times we're coming into problems with some angle you know, there's some part of the income statement in a business or some part of our scoreboard that we're operating against that's kind of provoked us to action. But we got to be careful. What are the parts that are linked up to that? And might making problem A better actually make other problems worse in a way that, that brings down the system as a whole? And this is where having the right people, like multiple different groups involved, can help solve that because you can see how this could affect different parts of the, the system. That's a really good point. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the the parks department is making this budget decision unilaterally, but if they'd really thought through and if they brought in some colleagues from other places, maybe they could have discovered that in advance. Maybe they didn't have to learn this the hard way. So let's say someone's listening to this and they're part of an organization, it could be their business, uh, nonprofit, church or whatever. And they there's a lot of like downstream problems. And they're like, I want to I'm going to make the sell on that. We're going to start solving these problems upstream. How do you, what, any advice on how to make that sell? Because it's a, it can be a hard sell to take time off to solve these problems that you, know, you might not, it might take a while to, to solve the problems. How do you, how do you think you can make the sell? Yeah, it can be tough. I mean, uh, it, it, this was this was not intentional, but there's kind of two meanings of the word upstream, you know, upstream in the sense of preventing problems. And then there's the sense of upstream as in swimming upstream. And, and I think it's no accident that that uh, the word means those two things. It's hard to break out of this pattern. And I think maybe your your best strategy is is to do two things. One we've already talked about, which is to get close to the problem and really be able to describe it up close, you know, to look at those medical examiner reports or to to get up close to the factory lines and look at where errors are happening. And then the second part that we haven't talked about is find a way to show what you've discovered. Because I think showing is, is as our you know eighth grade English teacher always told us, showing is a lot better than telling. And I'll give you an example. I was working with DuPont years ago, and, and one of the managers told me the story that they were trying to get one of their factories to take waste more seriously. And, you know, any, any factory these days after, you know, 50 years of quality improvement is, is going to be pretty good just from the get go. And so we're talking about, you know, round off error type waste, probably one to 5% or something, but still is a problem we're tackling. But if you're, if you're somebody who works on the front line of a factory, like how do you get excited about going from 3% waste to half a percent or something? And so there wasn't a lot of motivation around this move to reduce waste. And so the manager is trying to figure out, like, how do I, how do I get people to want to do something different? And he realized that he, he had to stop talking about it at the process level. And he's had to, to, 
to be able to help them visualize the harm. And so one day they show up to work and they're expecting to, you know, get on the factory line. And instead he kind of ushers them all into a van and drives them to the landfill that they used. And there was one particular section of the landfill that was kind of DuPont's area. And he, he brought them out there and he showed them just this vast expanse of, of trash and waste. And, you know, you see something like that. It just, it hits you at a visceral level, not an intellectual level, just the, the horror of how much stuff you have just dumped onto the earth because of your work. And he said, what you're seeing right now is the reason why I want us to start taking waste more seriously. And he said, all of a sudden it made a night and day difference. The people started getting with the program. They started helping him iterate the processes. And I love that story because I think it's a good, a good inspiration for the rest of us that, that as we get closer to the problem, as we turn up those leverage points, we don't want to talk about those things. We don't want to intellectualize about them. We want to show people what we found. You know, we want to show people that medical examiner report about the two groups of kids that ended up in a gunfight over an argument over bikes, because those are the things that are going to motivate action when other people can see what we see. Well, Dan, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? If you're interested in in more about the book, just go to upstreambook.com and it will have all the details you could ever want. Fantastic. Well, Dan Heath, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Enjoyed it. My guest today was Dan Heath. He's the author of the book Upstream, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his book at his website, upstreambook.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash upstream, where you can find links to resources where you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanless.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying new episodes of the AOM Podcast ad-free. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay, reminding you not only listen to the A-Win podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.